What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Jack Zamplin is a core developer at Cosmos and a co-founder of Sommelier. In this conversation, we discuss proof of work, proof of stake, and when each is applicable for specific use cases. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jack, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Compass Mining. Compass Mining is the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. Their team makes it easy to start mining wherever you want, at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. Through the Compass Marketplace, retail miners can access mining hardware with similar prices and purchase plans as the world's largest mining companies. Compass miners own their machines, choose whatever mining pool they want, and they mine directly to their own wallet. Miners who don't want to host their machines can order ASICs directly to their doorstep as well. Simple and low-cost hosting agreements coupled with best-in-class customer service are the reasons why Compass is the simplest and most popular way to mine Bitcoin. You can start mining your own Bitcoin today by visiting compassmining.io. Again, go to compassmining.io and you can start mining Bitcoin today. Compassmining.io. Next up is Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has a product called AG1. It's the category-leading superfood product. It brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each of us be at our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The daily blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting, free, one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com pomp today. Again, go visit athleticgreens.com pomp to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. So go to athleticgreens.com slash pomp today. All right, let's get into this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Jack here with me. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, Pomp. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's just jump right into this. Uh, you're working on a whole bunch of stuff that I think is part of a debate around uh, proof of work versus proof of stake, interoperability versus kind of a fragmented ecosystem uh, type approach. And I just want to dig into uh, some of the explanations behind what these technologies are or some of the mechanics and approaches. So let's start with proof of work versus proof of stake. Maybe you can highlight for folks uh, what the difference between the two are and then when you think that proof of stake could uh, be valuable or effective versus times where you think that proof of work could be valuable or effective? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that just to sort of start this conversation off, uh, we all got into cryptocurrency through Bitcoin. And I think that proof of stake is one of those fundamental innovation, or sorry, proof of work is one of those fundamental innovations that, that changed the way the world worked for the better. And what proof of work was designed to do was provide a nation state resistant uh, sort of global compute layer to provide support for the first cryptocurrency, which is Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I don't think Bitcoin and proof of work is ever going to go away. And I think it's amazing that it's grown the way that it has. And, you know, cool to see today that the U.S. is number one in mining after many, many years of not being so. So, you know, proof of work coming back home to the U.S. is, is an exciting thing, too. But uh, if you start looking to scale proof of work, um, it doesn't really make sense to have a lot more than one or maybe a few proof of work chains because, uh, all of the hash power is going to gravitate towards the strongest of those chains. So how are we going to secure some of these other blockchains that are going to be needed to you know, have higher transaction throughput, um, you know, provide more programmability in, in some of these other types of systems? And proof of stake is, a, is an excellent mechanism for that. Proof of stake is essentially a much more resilient version of the compute networks that Google and Apple and all of the major tech giants use to run their internal services. Um, but it adds an economic factor on top of it to help be able to run it on open networks. So, you know, that's kind of how I'd frame that discussion. When you think about how those large tech companies run, they explain a little bit more what you mean by this is kind of a more resilient way to do it, but a very similar way. Yeah. So those large tech companies, you know, if you have a database, um, you know, back in the Oracle days, you would have one huge mainframe and you would shove all of the data into the mainframe. Now, if the power cuts out to that mainframe, the disks start to die, you know, it becomes this single point of failure in your compute architecture and you have to start figuring out, well, how do I make sure that this is always available? The best way to do that is to split that database across multiple nodes and to have all of those nodes have the same data in them. And that is a field of research called consensus algorithms. And the first widely deployed commercial consensus algorithms were things like Raft and Paxos. And I could get real nerdy about this, but I don't think your audience wants to hear that. Um, but the, the key point there is that it scales it out among a number of different computers and enables that data to be always available. Um, and the problem with those algorithms, the initial ones that are used in most large tech companies right now, is that if somebody corrupts one of the nodes, the entire cluster can get taken down. So it's not resilient against adversaries. And the way that those tech companies protect those things is they keep them deep, deep inside their physical data centers and, and use a lot of lines of defense to protect those servers. Another way to protect them is to make the consensus algorithm resilient to uh, malicious actors. Um, so people looking to take down the system would have to, you know, buy a certain number of votes within the system. And that's basically how proof of stake works. Got it. And so I think that this really highlights, um, you know, kind of the main difference between proof of work versus proof of stake. Now, in order to attack the proof of work system, you would have to go and gain control of 51% of the network. Uh, the way that yeah. you would do that is either you would have to somehow come into possession of 51% uh, of the hash rate in terms of people already have it installed and you somehow, you know, kill them, steal it, confiscate it, whatever. And, and 
now all of a sudden you have 51% or two is you would have to attempt to try to purchase enough hardware and energy in order to bring on much more uh, hash rate and get to that 51% given some of the limitations around just how many uh, chips are available, how much mining hardware, et cetera. I think most people estimate that that's probably not possible just from like a physical logistics standpoint uh, at the moment. Maybe it, yeah, maybe it changes in the future, maybe it doesn't, yeah. but, but for right now, pr pretty difficult. Uh, the existing miners are having enough trouble finding enough hardware. <laughs> uh, um, and so in this proof of stake system, I think that one of the concerns, whether it's you know, well-founded or not is, oh, you don't have to worry about kind of the supply chain. You don't have to worry about going, finding the money. If I just come to the market and I've got a trillion dollars and there's a proof of stake network, that's something less than that. I could just buy 51% of the outstanding uh, tokens or votes. And then now all of a sudden I control the network. What is the um, uh, kind of analysis of that? Is that true? Is it not true? And how do you think about yeah. uh, kind of what mitigates that risk, if you will? Well, one thing that I would point out is it's actually two thirds. You need two thirds of the votes, so um, it's slightly more. Um, the the math behind proof of stake is slightly different than proof of work, but the way that I always think about this is that is kind of like buying and equipping an army, and you use your servers that are the miners to go out and fight against other miners to find these blocks. And I always think of uh, computer systems as modeling human systems. So proof of work models the logic of sort of armies and, you know, nation states, whereas proof of stake models the logic of companies. You know, what is a token distribution other than a stock distribution? And instead of only voting at board meetings, you're voting once every five seconds or <laughs> however long it takes to create the blocks. So, um, you know, I think for different jobs, for a nation state resistant digital currency that's available globally, proof of work is an excellent tool. Um, for a lot of other things, companies have proven to be very resilient to all kinds of different attacks uh, throughout history, and they've shown the ability to manage massive economic systems. And I, I think proof of stake is going to prove no different. Got it. And so are there specific times where you think the proof of stake system is uh, more effective or more applicable versus proof of work? I, I know you've got some thoughts in terms of a kind of Bitcoin and, and resistance to potentially uh, state attacks and things like that and, and proof of work being important, but maybe kind of delineate between the two. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of these DeFi things that people are using right now are great on top of proof of stake systems. Um, you know, we're really starting to see adoption in the, in, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem, but as well as the Cosmos ecosystem. We've got Osmosis, which is a great example of all of the technology that we've built over the last few years. We're working end to end, um, and that's a decentralized exchange. Um, some of these decentralized lending protocols, uh, things like NFTs, you know, I don't think you need a globally censorship resistant layer to provide cool profile pictures, you know, having a community run network of validator nodes that provides this really cool service to, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people globally is the much more a efficient way um, and be cost effective way to do that. So, you know, I think that most of the applications that crypto is getting used for right now um, are wonderful on top of proof of stake chains. Yeah, when you start to think about um, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, uh, how do you measure uh, kind of a effectiveness or success maybe of those systems, right? Because I think right now, uh, if I had to look at this, and again, you know, I'm super biased, I, I've got kind of the perspective I have, the experience and expertise I have, you have uh, a different skill set, uh, which may lend you to be uh, kind of better informed about some of the nuances here, is 
proof of work for the most part, I think people have said, okay, yes, checks the box. This works It's resistance to attack. Uh, we generally understand, uh, kind of the pros and cons of it. And, uh, for something like Bitcoin makes a ton of sense, go ahead and, and, uh, let's continue. Then my understanding is in terms of a lot of these proof of stake systems and, and maybe not just proof of stake, but proof of time and, you know, 9,000 other, what appears to be kind of variations of how to do it other than proof of work, uh, that people are constantly innovating around and, and trying to create. Are there certain metrics you look at or milestones or anything that, that you kind of say like, hey, when something reaches this point, that to me means that it's been successful or effective? You know, I think we're still in the point where we as a whole crypto ecosystem are proving success and effectiveness. And I think one way of looking at that is market cap. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously Bitcoin doing fantastic right now. That's great. Um, the market cap of all of the chains that are built on top of the Cosmos technology is, uh, I'm pretty sure right now, well over a hundred billion. Um, I, I haven't looked at the the ticker recently, but um, you know, by the the sort of gross monetary metrics and in proof of stake, the amount of value that's secured by each individual chain is a measure of its security. In the same way that hash rate is a measure of uh, you know a proof of work security. Um, so in that way, I, I think we've been very successful um, so far. And I think that we've got a lot of work to do to kind of prove this technology out. But with Cosmos's key theme being interoperability, one of the things that, that I think is really important is that we all look at crypto as this thing that we're working on together. I don't really view that I have a tribe. Like I, you know, I, I work with a lot of Cosmos folks, but I work with a lot of Ethereum folks as well. And you know, I've got a lot of Bitcoiners who are friends. I worked at Blockstack for a year plus, so um, you know, I, I think that this is a huge boat that we're all in together. And each of these different technologies is a piece of the puzzle that's going to bring us towards mass adoption, and is going to bring into reality this world that we're all looking for that is more sovereign, um, more friendly towards individuals and protects our individual liberty um, in a way that's deeply baked into the software as opposed to trying to trust government officials to do that. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, if you look kind of, I don't know, bird's eye view at the industry right now, there is Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is uh, obviously a technology, but it has kind of a community around it. It has an economy around it, if you will. Yeah. Then there are others as well. So you have the Ethereum economy, you have the Ethereum yeah. uh, kind of community, right? You have Cosmos and you just can go down the line. Uh, and I frankly have lost count as to how many there are around. Some of them are big, There's some of them lot. are small and everything in between. Yeah, at, at, tons of them, uh, all to varying degrees of size, uh, varying degrees of engagement, yeah. um, and then also varying degrees of success uh, uh, kind of along the, uh, that as well. And so one of the big questions I think that people are still trying to understand is, will we end up with highly fragmented economies and, and kind of uh, communities where, you know, the Bitcoin community is off in one corner, there's another community, another corner, there's, you know, a thousand of these things. Or is there ultimately going to be interoperability? So we've seen, for example, uh, just use the two largest uh, assets as kind of the, the quintessential example. There's a lot of people who've taken Bitcoin. They've wrapped it through these wrapped uh, BTC. You raised your hand, so you're one of them. Uh, and then basically bring it into, uh, let's say, the uh, the Ethereum community. Uh, on the same side, you have something like uh, Sovereign, which, uh, which is something I've invested in, which essentially is trying to build vertically integrated, decentralized financial uh, applications and products. But the way that they accomplish that is they build it on top of Bitcoin, leveraging interoperability with other ecosystems, other types of technologies, et cetera. And so, 
I frankly don't have the answer. Like I, I've, uh, I used to, in my, uh, in my earlier days, used to take uh, kind of, I believe this is gonna happen. I now full well throw my hands up and say, look, I don't know what the future holds. Uh, I'm actually here just to kind of learn from other people and understand what, uh, what they think. How do you think about it? Like wh what is the end, you know, kind of state of that? And then along the way, how do you measure which direction we're actually heading in? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I like to think about this from an econ 101 angle. Um, trade between previously closed economies results in positive sum interactions for both. So I think that one way to think about these different protocols is, is different trading blocks. And like, if you look at the WBTC protocol, that is the Ethereum and Bitcoin trading block. And, and that has opened up opportunities between those two previously closed economies that did not exist before. Um, so, you know, I think one way to look at success of an interoperability protocol is to look at the total value addressable um, over that protocol. Uh, and, you know, I think that at the end of the day, there is going to likely be one or two of two major value transfer protocols. Um, and it will knit together all of these previously closed economies and the ones that remain disconnected will wither and the ones that are able to access this massive pool of liquidity from all over the world uh, will continue to prosper and will have a, an, actually an opportunity to prosper, uh, whereas disconnected ones will not. Yeah, and so when you start to understand kind of how that interoperability uh, at least is moving in that way, how do you think about the individual assets, right? So again, Bitcoin versus uh, the Ethereum community, uh, not in terms of like pitting them against each other, but just Bitcoin has Bitcoin as the uh, kind of reserve asset of that community. You then have Ether as the reserve of the Ethereum community. Uh, then you've got Cosmos and kind of all, all these other ones. How do you think about those assets being able to uh, be ported or, or used in other economies? Is there something built on top? Like, like just walk me through kind of how that works from a, like an execution standpoint. Yeah, you know, I think that very quickly we're going to move into a place where all of these different tokens kind of float away. And the end user experience is driven through stable coins and other sort of much more understandable intermediaries. Um, and a lot of the kind of financial plumbing of swapping, you know, your Ethereum for your Bitcoin to be able to pay fees on these different networks happens automatically as you make these transactions. Um, so, you know, the world that we're living in with decentralized exchange and decentralized lending platforms is powering that. And, uh, you know, all that it takes is good user experience to, to sort of start driving these interactions. So, you know, if we zoom back out and look at the world that I'm thinking about, there's thousands of these different tokens. And as a user, you can pick and choose your exposure um, and seamlessly move in and out of these different positions. Got it. And so when you start to look at um, kind of the way people use this, is it ultimately that the applications that are built on some of this, what I'll call more like infrastructure layer or layer ones, whatever kind of terminology you want to use, uh, naturally, they're all going to be built for interoperability in kind of your view of the world? Or is it uh, something where we'll still also get some folks that are just focused on one single community and vertically integrate with, uh, with that? You know, I look at this the same way I look at the internet. You know, uh, the internet started with a bunch of research in institutions connecting with each other. And that's kind of the stage that we're at right now. There's a bunch of different protocols. They're all kind of warring. There's no consensus on which one's going to win. Um, but there's 
the beginnings of the ability to seamlessly move around a large number of these different systems. Um, and the way that the internet that the internet spread computing was not through larger and larger supercomputers that people connected to, i.e. bigger and bigger individual blockchains. Um, it was by connecting all of the different computers and allowing them each to talk to each other as peers. And, and that's what we built at Cosmos with IBC. It's, you know, we, we kind of took internet protocol and we said, okay, how would we make this be able to work between blockchains? And we kind of like took the TCP paper and like, you know, here's a handshake here and we're going to make some packets and send them. And like, that's kind of how IBC works. So, um, you know, I, I do see this kind of interconnection as inevitable. Will there be use cases for disconnected chains and disconnected communities and economies? Yes, of course, there always will be. Um, but where, what will we be talking about? We will be talking about things that are connected to this broader community of cryptocurrencies. Got it. And so when you think about um, kind of this future that we're moving towards, zoom out 20, 25 years, what does that look like from a user yeah. experience standpoint and, and uh, in terms of uh, what people will be able to do that either maybe they're not able to do today or things that uh, folks haven't thought about being able to do, given just that the technology wasn't there? See, in the same way you throw your hands up and you say, I don't really know where this is going. You know, I, I th my thoughts on this stuff is like, you know, I see what's happened in the past. And then there reached a point with the internet where we were like mobile hit. And then suddenly there was this like a bunch of stuff that nobody predicted. And, you know, you can see the, the sort of liquid exchange world where there's all these decentralized exchanges. As a user, you have a single interface where you're interfacing with a lot of different backend systems um, and managing all of your finances through that. Um, including your interactions with the traditional financial world. And I think that that is the, the sort of 20-year vision um, is that we move the entirety of the financial system from sort of banks and what we think of as traditional finance today over to decentralized alternatives. And, and you know, that's the mission that brought me to Cosmos is migrate finance over to decentralized alternatives. And I think that that's kind of what we're in the middle of. As far as what new applications that's going to enable, um, there's all sorts of folks working with NFTs, which are awesome and exciting. And like I own an NFT or two, but that's not, that's not my expertise. Um, and, you know, I, I think that a lot of these things around social tokens and there's a lot of very exciting work being done out there, but in order to make that a possibility, we need to build the pipes. And that's kind of the work that I do in my view. Got it. And, and so as we see that happens, what are the uh, kind of user experiences that you think uh, are missing today? Or one of the things I, I immediately notice is when uh, we look at kind of maybe the version one, whether uh, it was in uh, Bitcoin or, or some of these other communities, the design, the user interfaces uh, leave a lot to be desired, just considered to kind of web to consumer Internet. Right. And by the way, that was true of web two when it first started as well. So it's not it's not yeah. surprising, but it's obviously something that needs to be fixed. How do you evaluate, yeah. like, is it just literally let's go hire a bunch of designers and then get them working uh, in terms of improving it or the other things that can be done? I think that there's some fundamental weaknesses that we as crypto need to tackle. Um, better hardware wallets, many more of them, um, much more understanding around that. One of, one of my favorite things that's ever happened to me in terms of user experience is uh, one Christmas uh, back in 2018, I got my mom a ledger. And I said, hey, mom, I'm launching this network and I want to give you some atoms. 
and uh, she wears an uh, iWatch. And we were sitting there setting up her ledger and she's generating her mnemonic phrase and her heart rate alarm keeps going off. This stuff is scary for people. It's hard for people to understand. And there's a lot of education that we need to do um, around, especially keys and self-custody that is hard. Um, better understanding of key sharding and things like Shamir secret sharing and a lot of this kind of underlying cryptography there's a lot of fundamental UX work that just needs to go on there. And, you know, I think that probably most recently, and I know that this is not something that a lot of people in crypto really care about, but the Facebook Libra team did some interesting work um, on sort of social key recovery. Um, I think that in your sort of 20 year question, one of the things that I would love to see more solved and more understand and more understood is self-custody and, and the, the keys and sort of how that works and giving people the tools, giving average people the tools to be able to do this. And that's when we're going to really take the leap from a more niche product or something that people use through intermediaries into something that is truly the vision of crypto, which is this kind of self-custody individual liberty thing at Be Your Own Bank. And like, you can do that today. It's just real hard. Yeah. And I guess part of this, too, is not only do some of those ethos arrive, but what, what do you think is like the role of Bitcoin moving forward? Because uh, beforehand, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but beforehand, you held up a, a poster of Hal Finney, which looked amazing. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, Crypto Graffiti is the artist. He's uh, one of the early Bitcoin artists. Incredible piece. And, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a print. It, he, cut, he cut it out of a bunch of different credit cards and made this composite that is Hal. Oh. He actually got one of Hal's credit cards, and this is his signature right here. <laughs> that is incredible. So you you got this piece. You you know very clearly stated, hey, look, uh, you came into the industry like many people through Bitcoin. Uh, you now are working on a whole bunch of different things uh, and trying to bring on interoperability, proof of stake, etc., into uh, existence in a material kind of successful way. What do you think the role of Bitcoin is uh, kind of moving forward? Maybe you know again in that twenty twenty five year uh, kind of time horizon. Yeah, you know, money is a meme. And I think that more than anything, that is what crypto is showing us over and over again. Um, and the most powerful money meme out there is the US dollar. And I think number two is probably Bitcoin. Um, and all of these ideas that we are delving more deeply into in the rest of the crypto industry, Bitcoin is bringing to the masses in a very real way um, and that has a ton of value and that's not going to go away. And that, that sort of mental place that Bitcoin holds as the sort of center and beating heart of cryptocurrency, I don't think is replaceable. So, you know, Bitcoin playing this store of value and sort of large institutional adoption and settlement role and, you know, also bringing nation states into it like El Salvador and, you know, lightning adoption it's the bitcoin community is continuing to innovate i think you mentioned sovereign stacks is another company that i used to work for uh, that's building smart contracts on top of bitcoin you know the innovation is happening at a much slower pace than a lot of the rest of the crypto industry but um i don't see bitcoin going anywhere and i do see it retaining its centrality in the the crypto ecosystem for sure. And and I guess part of uh, what I'm personally most interested in is like 
economic impact, right? So uh, in the last yeah. couple of days, we've seen everything from 5.4% inflation on a CPI basis. Uh, we saw over 4 million people quit their jobs in August, but we have 11 million open roles. Uh, unemployment's over 5%. You know, you just go down the line, uh, even to the point where there was a recent op-ed in one of the major financial publications that was literally advocating for higher inflation and longer lasting inflation, which to me, yeah. you know, from my view of the world, again, maybe I'm completely wrong and I'm a complete moron or uh, that they're wrong, right? Who, who knows what, what ends yeah. up being? Uh, I think true. history says they're wrong, but you know. I, I tend to me. agree, but I'm trying to be nice. Um, and, yeah. and so like we live in this world where it's like there's madness. And when there's madness, I immediately say to, wow, there's people who are getting hurt. I'm really interested in the economic um, kind of protection uh, and also the economic opportunity or prosperity. And so when you think about that, what is the thing, whether people who are listening to this are builders, investors, entrepreneurs, whatever, what can they be doing to kind of contribute? Is it literally just keep innovating, keep building, keep, keep kind of producing things of value? Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's a, that's a really powerful statement you just made there, Pop, and like it, it brings to mind a lot of things. I think this system that we have right now in the U.S., this global monetary system that's been created, the financial policymakers have kind of run away with it, and it's not accountable to voters anymore. And I think that the the decision that people like myself and people like you have made is that, you know, okay, great. Like, if they want to go screw that system up, we're going to go build our own. And we're going to build value there and we're going to continue to work on it, continue to ship code, you know, cypherpunks write code. And like, if you want to help be part of the change, like get out there, go join a crypto startup and go start building things. Um, you know, there's, I, I have a number of job openings if anyone's interested, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's uh, like ideologically, I, I think it's just extremely important that we build this alternative system in case the other one breaks. For sure. What, um, what, what can people go find the job openings that you have? Where can they go to, uh, to, to learn more about those opportunities? Um, go to, uh, sommelier.finance. I, I think we've got a job, a couple of job listings there. So, uh, please check that out. That is, uh, the company that I work for right now. Um, it's a couple of other core developers from Cosmos and we're building a, uh, Ethereum to Cosmos bridge, which is currently in production, um, as well as DeFi applications on top of that. So basically linking DeFi applications from various different blockchains together. Got it. And so explain what the value proposition of that is in terms of, uh, once you go ahead and you link them together, does it just provide more liquidity, more kind of interoperability or what, what's the value? Yeah. So the, the first thing that we're doing is we're uh, building tools for liquidity providers on Uniswap V3. Um, Uniswap V3 requires a lot more active management of your liquidity within liquidity pools. It's a lot more like being a market maker in traditional markets. And what we're doing is we're building automation around that. But instead of having it just behind a multi-sig where some random people can steal all the money out of it, um, we're doing that automation through a validator set that's transparent, auditable, uh, anyone can join and, and, and be a part of it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, if we were talking a lot more about DeFi and digging deeply into DeFi, I'd love to share more about some, but I think it's kind of a tough lift for a lot of folks because it, it, you have to dig into the mechanics of Cosmos, Ethereum, and Uniswap itself to really fully explain the product. But uh, basically think of it as, financial automation for 
pretty much anyone really, you know, that, that's kind of the wonders of DeFi is that um, previously, you know, things like prime brokerages offer these really cool services to hedge funds and high net worth individuals, um, but the average user can't get those. Whereas with blockchains, we can build these services, these really cool services that knit together multiple different pieces of financial infrastructure. Um, and we can offer those permissionlessly to anyone. Yeah. It's really interesting when you start to think about how you can build an interface on top of the layers, right? Layer ones. Yeah. And if you can make it interoperable, uh, the market will ultimately decide where the, the true value is. Right. Yeah. Um, which is uh, which is fascinating. Uh, what's I mean, you know, I think in blockchain, we are fundamentally believers in the free market. And another thing that you, you, you were talking earlier about the sort of inflation and, you know, the protection and sort of safe haven that cryptocurrency offers like I read Anne Brand growing up. And this sounds a lot like Gold's Gulch in real life. <laughs> yeah. What's been the biggest surprise to you over the last year in uh, in the industry? Uh Wow. 2020 was crazy. Um, you know, we saw the, like the bottom of the crypto industry and, you know, for me personally, I, I've been building for a lot of years. I, I started at Cosmos back in 2018 and, uh, you know, back then we didn't have a live blockchain. No one had deployed proof of stake. Um, this idea of interoperability, which is what we were selling was so far away. And there were so many different pieces that we had to get live. And, uh, you know, that work has kind of come to a culmination over the last year. And we have this Internet of Blockchains interoperability protocol live. It's moving billions of dollars of value. Um, and, you know, that has been a really fun journey for me personally and one of the most wonderful surprises of my life. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating when you start to see how the industry is moving so quickly, what's been the biggest disappointment to you? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I'm like, I'm one of these like super positive guys. So uh, I, I don't have a whole ton of disappointments. Um, you know, it, it's always kind of like, the market's gonna like whatever the market wants. And, you know, we've all got ideas on, on what we like best. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a whole ton of disappointments. Just it's it's incredible to kind of like see this adoption cycle come back again, you know, uh, working in kind of relative obscurity for a bunch of years and then having a ton of people really interested in what you're doing is just great. So like, I, I don't really have a whole ton of complaints. <laughs> when you think about uh, proof of stake and interoperability, what do you think is the best argument against them? Right, like if you kind of uh, subscribe to the thought process of uh, you always want to be able to argue your uh, um, kind of critics argument better than them. Yeah. What, what do you think is like the fair uh, critique of both of those? Proof of stake leads to cartels. Proof of stake is the rule of small groups, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like kind of, you know, it's modeling what is a company and can you have cartels form within companies? Yes, absolutely. And all of the sort of criticisms of companies are valid criticisms of proof of stake. And, it, you know, those things are real and we need to build better governance tooling, more transparency um, and better processes within these organizations to help mitigate those issues. And 
I, I think that that's one of the areas where I've been most active is in the governance of these different protocols and trying to work to make sure that we automate as much as possible, ensure that things are transparent, um, and ensure that people are working within the interests of the token holders in these networks. And if that sounds a lot like somebody working in traditional corporate governance, like that's because it kind of is. Yeah. And when you think about uh, it being, um, you know, I'll say replica just because it's easy vernacular to use of, uh, of the yeah. existing system, does that lend credibility to the argument um, proof of work ends up being really, really good. Kind of where we started the conversation uh, for yeah. things where uh, state attack or, you know, significant resistance against um, uh, kind of being a, a taken over or, or attacked in some way, things like Bitcoin and, and uh, digital yeah. currency uh, is really important. But for the other stuff, actually performance is more important in terms of like high throughput, low fees and, and all of that. And yes, you want it to be secure, obviously, but you're less concerned uh, in those systems with uh, kind of the catastrophic external, you know, State level attack versus no, we yeah. really, really need high throughput and low fees. And so that's where the, the proof of stake systems become effective. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But one thing I would caveat there is like if somebody wanted to mount a state level attack against the Cosmos hub, th that would be a extremely difficult cost, potentially billions of dollars and would have to span hundreds of different jurisdictions. So it, it's not like somebody can show up and turn a key and like attack these systems, it would have to be a long-term sustained attack uh, over the course of months, if not years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy to me to kind of just think through how, uh, so much game theory is at play. And the short answer is nobody knows until it all plays out, right? <laughs> we're we're yeah, going to find absolutely. out. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, uh, like I, I remember prior to launching the Cosmos Hub, we basically all the engineering team did was sit and talk about different potential attacks on proof of stake in the specific system that we were building. And that period was so, so fun. Um, and I love it. And, you know, there's a lot of GitHub issues and write ups of some of these different attacks that people have thought up. And a lot of them are really creative, really, really cool. Um, but, you know, what gave me confidence in launching the system and, you know, there's a video of me in a bow tie, like watching the first block and I go completely apeshit. <laughs> but uh, it's what gave me the confidence to launch the system is, is when you sit down and practically think that with a couple hundred, well, I think we've got 150 on the Cosmos up right now, 150 validators that are geographically distributed. Um, what would really be required to take down the network? And, you know, think about it from a practical perspective. And the answer is, it's really hard. And, uh, you know, that this protocol and this proof of stake system that we built offers a lot of very, very strong assurances for users. And, and that was what kind of gave me the confidence to, to go ahead and launch the system. Where can people learn more about actually what you're building and uh, follow you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm uh, at Jack underscore Zamplin on Twitter. Um, and I've got uh, two things that I'm building. Uh, the main one is Sommelier Finance. Um, and that is, as I was talking about earlier, providing tooling for liquidity providers across the interchain. Um, and uh, that is a really interesting project. We've got a lot of stuff happening there. Uh, we're going to be at the conference in Lisbon. Um, starting in early November. So please come and see us. And then the other one is my validator company called Strange Love Ventures. 
uh, and we provide uh, consulting and services as well as uh, contributing code and work to the various protocols that we invest and work on. Um, so those are the two main places that uh, I am and, and where I would suggest folks check out what I'm working on. Awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's fascinating to kind of watch the proof of work, proof of stake conversation uh, play out and, and kind of the different reasons why somebody would want to use them. Uh, and then obviously yeah. this uh, th this kind of move towards interoperability that a lot of people are working on. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I highly suggest people. Go can, I, can I say one thing about that? You know, yes. I see on Twitter a lot of Bitcoiners out there being very tribal. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to speak out against that. Like, I bought my first Bitcoin back in 2013. I work with a lot of people in this proof of stake world. All of them own Bitcoin. All of them got into crypto through Bitcoin. Like the, the Bitcoin is the values that Bitcoin has are broadly shared by the rest of the industry. And I would encourage people that have bought Bitcoin to try out some of these other systems. Go to Osmosis, which is a, a, a really cool decentralized exchange on top of Cosmos, which shows how all of these pieces I've been talking about with interoperability today fit together. And, you know, make a decision for yourself. Maybe it's not right and that's OK. But, you know, get out there and at least try some of these things and, and don't be so assured that Bitcoin is the one and only thing that you ever need. And the only things built on top of Bitcoin are the one true gospel, because there's a lot of things out there. This technology is still in its infancy and there's a lot of other things that are going to be really successful and you're going to miss out on a lot of really fantastic investment opportunities. That's not financial advice, just FYI. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I'd encourage folks and, you know, try to keep a little bit more of an open mind towards some of these other systems. Would it be fair to follow that up and say that some of the other ecosystems are just as tribal? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I tell this to the Ethereum people who are tribal. I tell this to the Cosmos people who are tribal. And, you know, but like this is one of the reasons I like Cosmos is all of the leaders in this ecosystem are all out there saying like the same thing I'm saying, like get out there and try a bunch of other stuff. There's all kinds of great ideas out there. And, and in order to really reach the goals that we have as an industry, we're going to need to incorporate all of the best ideas from all over this industry. And there's really no other way to do it. I think it's a perfect place to end, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Bob. We'll definitely have to do it again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks a lot and uh, talk soon.